0: Also, um, as many of you know, uh, Tanisha Lewis is a part of our church and her and Caleb are getting married this coming June. uh, And many of you know she's had some health complications and uh, she's in at the clinic this morning. She's had a bit of a flare-up. And so, uh, so obviously with the wedding just six days away, that's a cause for concern for them. And so as we start, why don't we all just stand up and uh, we're just going to pray for them right now this morning, okay? So Father, we don't just sing that You are mighty to reign and You uh, rise with healing in Your wings. We believe it. We believe that You have healing. Uh, power. We believe that you are able to save not just from our sins, but from illness. You are the great comforter. Uh, You're able to bring peace that surpasses uh, how we see a situation. And so we just pray for Caleb and Tanisha this morning. We pray that you would bring healing to her. We pray for comfort by your Holy Spirit for both of them. And we pray for your peace. And we put our full trust in you. And we pray that through this illness and through their wedding and through their marriage, that you would be glorified through it all as they put their trust in you, the great healer, the great provider, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's have a seat. And you can keep uh, remembering them in prayer throughout this week, and then we're going to gather this Saturday at Green Hill Lake Camp, and I have the privilege of, of marrying them this Saturday. So. Alright, so we've been going through, uh, when I'm up here, we've been going through a series called Jesus' lastish ish Words uh, to remind us that uh, Jesus, uh, His words on the cross, as weighty and as important as they are for the hearers that were there and for us today, uh, they weren't His last words. And He spoke again because He rose again. There we go. And He speaks today because He lives today. Very good. And so the the cross and the resurrection need to be kind of a a combo pack in our mind. We can't think of just the cross without the resurrection because then it's hopeless, right? And we can't think of just the resurrection without the cross because we empty it of its victory celebration over sin, the death, and the devil. And so we need to keep those things together, that Jesus died and He rose. Hallelujah. So this morning... We're going to continue on that. We're out of Luke 23, though, uh, where we were for the first two words of Jesus on the cross. And this morning we're going to jump into John 19. John 19, my Bible's upside down. It works better the other way. And so we're in John 19, verse, uh, we'll start at verse 23. John 19. Verse 23. So, just a bit of background so we get the picture again of what's going on. So, Jesus, uh, he was betrayed and arrested in the garden. He hasn't slept since then. He's just been drugged around from high priest to authority to authority to council. He's been wrongly accused. He's had the crowd that had shouted Hosanna just a few days before now shouting for his head. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's been mocked. He's been spit on. He's had a crown of thorns pushed on his head. He's so weak and bloody from the blood loss that he can't even carry his cross to his place of execution. They have to get someone else to carry it. He's brought. He's nailed to the cross through his hands and his feet, and he's raised up in front of a mocking crowd and in between two thieves. That's our scene that we've seen so far of what's happened, and it's horrific. And, um, but that is what Jesus went through. And in the midst of that agony and suffering, we've heard Him look out at the crowd in front of Him who was railing against Him and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then we've heard Him look at the thief beside Him on the cross and say, today you will be with Me in paradise. Whew. Amazing. Amazing amazing things. And so the scene this morning, just picture that thief is there as we read this morning. That thief is beside him and his whole life has been changed. I just picture him there. The pain hasn't gone away. The physical pain hasn't gone away, but it's been overshadowed by a greater joy. And I just picture him on the cross just saying over and over and over, today I'll be with him in paradise. Today I'll be with him in paradise. Today I'll be with him in paradise. paradise." And so that's the scene so far, uh, and we come to John 19, verse 23. And after giving the great promise to the thief beside him, he now turns his attention to a small group of people in front of him. So, John 19:23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So immediately John sets up the contrast between the soldiers and this group of women and the disciple that Jesus loved is most likely John himself. And so we see these heartless soldiers turning a man's death into a lottery. There's no concern, there's no reflection. This is just one of many crucifixions for them. And if they can use it to get ahead a bit by having a dead man's clothes, uh, then they'll do that. There's no—it's a heartless response to the death of Jesus. And again, it fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. This time, from Psalm 22. And then notice John says in verse 25, the soldiers did these things, but there was the contrast. Not everyone there was heartless. Not everyone uh, had abandoned Jesus. There was a group there that loved Him. There was a group that stayed with Him. And the list John gives can be a bit confusing depending on what translation you're reading from. Uh, It can be a bit confusing of how many Women are actually there, um, and, and various interpretations have been given from two women to three women to four women. Uh, one translation helps a bit. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and her sister, as well as Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So most would say then that there are four women here at the foot of the cross. So we have Jesus' mother, who we know is Mary, and we'll come back to her. We have Mary's sister Jesus' aunt, she's unnamed at this point, so we won't add much to that. We won't speculate this morning. Uh, We have another Mary, Mary the wife of Clopas, and this is the only time she's mentioned like that in the Bible. Um, Other Gospels talk about Mary, the mother of James, or the other Mary, so that could be her. It would be nice to be known as the other Mary. Um, That could be her or that could be another Mary altogether. And then at the end, uh, John mentions another Mary, Mary Magdalene, who uh, Emma gave us a bit of background on, and we see her in Luke 8 being the woman who is rescued from seven demons, presumably as the result of Jesus' ministry. And so we have four women, Mary, 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 and Mary's sister. (laughs) And there may have been even more Mary's name there, which at first you're kind of like, really? Until your kids start school and every boy in their class is named Ethan or Dylan or Braden, right? So, not that far, far off. So, we have four women, and we can picture all of these women in immense pain and confusion and many tears. Uh, they only, the one they, had, the one they had loved and followed is now being crucified in front of them. But surely their pain was nothing compared to the pain of Mary, Jesus' mother. Their pain was nothing compared to the pain of Mary, Jesus' mother. Not only was Jesus her Savior too, but this was also her son. The baby she had delivered and nursed and rocked to sleep. This was the boy she had raised and read stories to. This was her miracle baby. She had taken him to the temple. He had prophetic words spoken over him an angel had appeared at his birth for goodness sakes and said that he would reign forever and so there she is with all of that this is her son this is her son hanging there on the cross she sees at the foot of the cross looking up at his beaten body pierced on the cross she hears his screams of agony this is her son we can't lose that. I mean, sometimes we, 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 in our, how do I word this, in our effort to not make too much of Mary, we ignore she went through some horrific things in the death of her son that she carried and raised. This is her son. And our natural instinct as a parent is to prevent our kids from enduring any pain and comfort them when they do experience pain. That's just our natural instinct. When they're younger, we can scoop them up and we can shush them and we can put the Hello Kitty Band-Aid on and give them a kiss and all is well, right? When they're older, it might not be a scraped knee, it might be that a boy has broken their heart. I haven't got there yet, so I'm not sure what to do, but boy, am I going to get there one day. (laughs) So, I think what you do is you take them out for ice cream and then you track that boy down, and you put the fear of God into his tiny life. I don't know. Amen from Byron. I've often thought I just want to sit them down and open up the, the section from First Samuel where David says, I used to tend sheep, and when a lion stole my sheep, I tracked them down and I struck them and delivered my sheep from his mouth. And if the lion rose up against me, I would grab him by his beard, and I would kill him. <laughs> and then just close the Bible and say, do you understand? I don't know, because I'm not there yet, but that's what I'm thinking. Aliyah, if this is still online in eight years, I love you. So. Our natural instinct is to rescue our children from pain. Our natural instinct is to comfort them when they're enduring suffering. We don't want them to endure that. We want them to be safe. But Mary here can do nothing. She can do nothing as her son is nailed to a cross in front of her, dying. She can do nothing. Many years earlier, just after Jesus was born, Mary took him to the temple and a prophet named Simeon prophesied, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And then he says to Mary, And a sword will pierce through your own heart. And so there, by the cross, she's experiencing the sword that was prophesied over her. She knew Jesus better than anybody. And there at the cross, the sword goes through her very soul. And when we see this, it should amaze us that she was even able to stay there. How was she even able to stay there? How was she not fainting on the floor? How was she not in hysterics? She was there. What confidence in God must she have had? I just picture thinking back to the promise that the angel gave her at Jesus' birth. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. I just picture saying, God, you said forever. God, you said he would reign. God, you said he would be the Son of the Most High God and I don't understand what's going on, but I trust in you. Yes, the sword is piercing my own soul, but you are the God of the sword. She had to have a deep confidence in God in that situation. And certainly, Mary's sword reminds us that we've all been promised a sword in following Jesus. We've all been promised that we'll experience pain and hardship and loss. Mary wasn't alone in receiving that promise that following Jesus would result in difficult times. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Meaning, following Him will result in conflict. Following Him will result in tension in various circumstances that wouldn't be there if you were not following Him. He said in John 16, 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So following Jesus doesn't result in an easy life. It is a good life, but it's not an easy life. Jesus tells us that we should expect it to be that way. Mary knew it to be like that. And so, if people look at you strange and they whisper behind your back and your reputation is drugged through the mud, Mary knows what it's like to have the whispers of being a young, uh, unmarried, pregnant, teenage girl claiming to have been visited by an angel. If you're the only one in your family following God and your parents or your siblings question you and think you're foolish, notice at the foot of the cross, Mary is alone. Joseph is presumably dead by now, but none of Jesus' brothers are believing in him or following him at that point. She is alone. You can picture them saying, Mom, we told you he was going to go. All this stupid Messiah talk would get him killed. We told you this would happen. She's all alone in her belief of Jesus as her Savior. If you've experienced the loss of family and friends because you felt God calling you away to something away from them or have said goodbye to a child who has moved because they felt God calling them to something in another country, Mary knows what it's like to lose a child who's following God's mission in his life. I was reading Todd Arend, who's the director of the Traveling Team, which is a campus missions work. Has said that the number one obstacle they face in mobilizing students for mission, for global mission, isn't money, it's parents. The number one obstacle they face in mobilizing students for world mission isn't money, it's parents. The reason more students are not going to serve in world missions and see the gospel reach the unreached and see the Great Commission filled is because we as parents don't want to experience that loss. We don't want to not see our children for years because of the gospel. We don't want to see the four years we spent on tuition in business school be wasted because they're going to some third world country to reach the unreached. That's a sobering, sobering thought as a parent. Because as parents, it's easy to let our care and concern and protection of our children get in the way of them following God. It's easy to let our care and concern of our children get in the way of them following where they feel God is calling them to. So we need to see, as parents, we need to see Mary here at the cross. We need to hear Jesus' promise of hardship. And we need to know that following God involves a release of our children from our grip into His more powerful grip. Our following God results in us releasing our children from our grip into God's more powerful grip. It's a sobering thought to think of that we as parents, and I'm thinking this through, none of my kids are asking to go away from me yet, but the day may come when they say, I feel God calling me here. And my care and safety for them, will I let that get in the way of where I feel God's calling them to. Whose grip is our child in? It's a hard question to ask, but for these verses uh, with that difficulty, we also have a great comfort as well because along with Mary's pain, we see Jesus's provision as well. So Mary undoubtedly in agony here at the cross, but just look at how Jesus takes care of her. Look at Jesus providing for his mom, even while on the cross, he says, He says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus sees his mother's pain, and he knows that currently she has no one to take care of her. And he looks at her and he says, This man, John, he loves me. He is my disciple. He is now your son to take care of you and provide for you. Be a mother to him. And then Jesus looks at John and says, Mary is now your mother. Take care of her. Provide for her. Be a son to her. And we should just sit back and be amazed at Jesus, the provider. And it probably stands out to you a bit that Jesus calls her woman that's kind of a bit oh why wouldn't he call her mother but he called he jesus never it's never recorded that jesus calls mary mother he always refers to her as woman but he's not being disrespectful he's showing that even his very mother does not have special access to him as a savior mary as well is a woman in need of his saving grace and jesus is underscoring the fact That he was much more than just a son to Mary. And the relationship of mother and son paled in comparison to the relationship of sinner and Savior. There's this time in Luke 11, Jesus is teaching, and it says that a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus says to her, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. In other words, Jesus is saying that relationship to Him on a spiritual level is much more important than relationship to Him on a physical level. Mary is blessed because she was obedient to the Word of God, just like you and I. So isn't it amazing over the last two weeks that we've been looking at this, we've seen a thief on the cross... Uh, an armed robber, guilty, hanging on the cross, receive forgiveness and be welcomed into paradise. And now we see Mary, his own mother, in need of that same salvation. And so at the cross, you see the thief, you see Mary, and you just hear the words of Romans 3, whether you're an armed robber or the mother, the earthly mother of Jesus, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But notice as well how Jesus just showcases His provision while on the cross. How Jesus is the great provider even while hanging on the cross. He's dying. He's nailed to a cross in agony, and He looks and He sees His mother's anguish, and right there He provides for her physical well-being. He is providing the ultimate provision and making her way, her access to God, but He's also providing for her at a specific, individual, earthly level. How amazing is Jesus? And I think God wants to drive it home because He drove it home all through worship as well. He is the great ruler. He reigns supreme, as Hazel said. He flung the stars into the sky, but as Barb sang, He knows us. He knows us. He sees us. He is not just a powerful king, he is a personal king. Sometimes when we look at, you know, Jesus as king and the kingdom of God and advancing the kingdom, we can be guilty of thinking that Jesus is just kind of out of reach and only concerned about big picture things. But this shows us that the bigger mission doesn't overshadow the individual needs of his people. Jesus is able to do both. There on the cross, He is able to triumphantly move His mission forward, and at the same time on the cross, He's able to see the needs of Mary and provide for her. Jesus just isn't in the war room, moving pieces around a big map, establishing His kingdom. He's a king amongst the people. He knows, He sees, He cares, He provides And he promises to care for us much more than the birds of the air. He promises to care for us much more than our earthly parents can. He is the great provider. He is the great provider. Do you see that? If Jesus can provide in that way while dying on a cross, how much more can he provide now sitting on his throne in heaven? I think if Jesus had a resume, it would be 0.1%. Senior Provision Specialist. Years experience, eternity past, dash, eternity future. He is the provider. That is what He does. When you read Romans 8, and you can read Romans 8, and you hear about how Jesus' mission isn't just us and our salvation, but all of creation is, is turned upside down, and Him dying on the cross and returning is putting all of creation right when you hear that, it's just like, if that's, if that's Jesus and his mission isn't just us, but it's the whole redeeming the whole of the universe, then what does he care about my little universe of, 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 of accomplishments and failures and suffering and hopes? What is my little tiny universe compared to his great uh, universal mission of redemption? But Jesus is showing us that he can do both. He is a great king. He is able to be on the cross and beginning to turn the whole universe right and establishing his kingdom, and he can provide for a widow who is losing her son. He can care for us at a personal, individual level. So yes, we should expect trouble, we should expect times of loss and hardship, times of the sword that was prophesied to Mary, but we should also expect that in those times we have a personal king who promises to supply every need of ours according to his riches and glory. He's a personal king. He's a personal king. Lastly, with these words, Jesus just doesn't show us his great provision for us, but he's also establishing the priority of his church in our lives. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus puts Mary in the care of one of his disciples and not in the care of one of, other, uh, one of her other sons. And why is this? You'd think that, you know, if, if she, had, she had a few sons, maybe some daughters in the in the Bible we read and so why wouldn't Jesus put her in the in the care of one of her sons? Why does she why does he go to John, one of his disciples, especially in a society that placed a high importance on family? You would think that Mary would and should be taken care of by her sons. But Jesus knew that Mary's needs went beyond just physical food and shelter. She was a believer of Jesus, she was a follower of him. And so she needed to be cared for at a spiritual level. And Jesus knew that his brothers couldn't do that because it tells us that they did not believe in him. By the time we get to Acts, we see that they've, uh, they've come around and they're there and eventually they become you know, fairly significant leaders in the church. But at this time, they're not following Jesus. And so Jesus knows Mary can't be taken care of like she needs to be taken care of in just that family. She needs a family that goes beyond family, and so he puts her in the care of the disciple that loves him in the care of John. So Jesus is saying to Mary, your physical sons can't take care of you. You see me and my glory, and they don't yet. And right now, John is more of a son to you because you're connected not by blood, but by my blood. So Jesus here is establishing His church, a community of believers, as a family beyond just family. As a family beyond family. A spiritual family that goes beyond our earthly, physical family. Do you see that? This is a huge thing that Jesus is doing. This is a huge thing here at the cross. Mary, your church family goes beyond your earthly family. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He's establishing the church as a family beyond our family. Now chances are if you've grown up in the church, that does not excite you. You do not see that as anything to be marveled at. That is just common as common can be. And you've joined hands and you've sung Uh, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod at about that level of excitement as well. But we need to recapture the beauty and the power of church as a family. We need to recapture how beautiful and how amazing it is that Jesus establishes His church not just as a group of people, not just as an army advancing His kingdom, but as a family that goes beyond our blood, earthly family. It's amazing. We need to see it again. So if you've had 30 years of singing monotone, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, strip that away. We'll throw it out the door. We are a family of God. The church is a family beyond our family. And if we see it, if we recapture the beauty and the power of church as a family, how does it change our view of our commitments to the church? How does it change how we approach gathering together for various meetings? How does it change how we serve? How does it change how we handle frustrations and disagreements amongst each other? What if I just didn't say Brother Joel in a bizarre formulaic way, that makes everyone at the grocery store turn around and see us as weird people, but what if I actually saw and treated Joel as my brother? What if when Robert and Patty uh, suffer loss in their fire, we didn't just say, well, I haven't really got to know them and I haven't been in the church that long, so. but what if we said, my brother and my sister just endured the loss of almost all they had in a fire? How does it change how we view these things? Last Sunday, we gathered for TAG prayer meeting, last Sunday night, and we called out to God for the youth in our church. Some of you that are here, we called out to God together for you to see God move in power in your life. And how do we, how do we carry that burden for other people's children to see them either come back to God or to see God work powerfully in their lives? How do we carry that burden? How do we pray with the same intensity and passion and desire for someone else's child? It's because we should see each other as a family. And the parents aren't meant to just carry their, their own children's burden, but we carry that with them. And we call out together to God with them. And it was an amazing time last Sunday night. God met with us. We were full of faith. We prayed big prayers. And now we see if God moves. We look for God to work because we love our youth, not just our own kids, but we're a family together. Older men and women, what can you do to help raise up spiritual sons and daughters in the church? So some would say that seeing church as a family, this idea of church as a family, just makes us kind of get into a huddle and look at each other and we become very... Uh, is it insular, insular, and we're just kind of we have no concern for God's mission in this city? I see it as I think it does the complete opposite. The more we see each other as a family, it doesn't hinder our mission. It actually motivates mission. James says in James 1:27, "Religion that is pure and undefiled by God before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction." and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Orphans and widows are those who have lost a significant member of their family on whom they depended for physical and emotional and relational and spiritual sustenance. And consequently, Consequently, they desperately need someone to then step in and provide those things for them. And James is saying that true religion is to love people like that. True religion is to be a family to those who have no family. True religion is to be a family to those who have no family. We can't just be a family for ourselves. We need to be a family for those in our city who have no family. And right here in this neighborhood, we don't have to look very far. The need is great. We need to be a family to those who have no family. And so as we look at working with the poor, as we seek where God is leading us and reaching different areas of the city where we need to see breakthrough, we can't just bring physical relief. We need to be a family to those who have no family. We need to provide father's for the fatherless. We need to be a place where the childless find children. We need to be a place where the refugee who's been separated from their family finds a new family. We need to be a place where widows are cared for and supported. We're not just providing physical relief. We need to be a family to those who have no family. where those who have no family find the most real family they could hope for. And that just doesn't come just because we want want it to. That requires work on our part. And there may be times like Mary in that where we experience the sword, where we experience the suffering and the loss and the sacrifice and the hardship. But we can do it and we will do it because we know that we have Jesus, our great provider, in those things, who says that whatever you give up for the kingdom, you will be repaid a hundred times more in His kingdom. We have a God who says He will supply every need of ours according to the riches of glory in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? A family beyond family. Will it require hardship and sacrifice? Yes. Is Jesus our great provider? Yes. Does he make a way for us to come to God, remove our sin, make us righteous before him? Yes. Does he also say that he will care for us, that he will never leave us or forsake us? He's not just giving us a golden ticket to get in to heaven. He is with us. He is our provider, not just in eternity, but in daily provision of his grace. He is with us. And because of that, then we can be a family to those who have no family. We can be fathers to the fatherless. We can provide much more than just physical relief. We can be a family together. Taking care of each other, yes, very important. Taking care of each other, but also extending out and inviting people in. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your words here on the cross. We thank You that we see that following You, we will experience hardship. We will experience suffering. We pray, Father, that You'd give us courage in that to follow You. We pray as well that You would renew our trust in You as our great provider. That You would renew our trust in you that if you are able to provide a way of salvation, and if you are able to provide uh, Mary's physical needs while you were nailed to a cross, helpless and dying, how much more are you able to provide for us even now when you're reigning in power? So we pray that you would give us a great faith in you and a great trust in you to follow you wherever you're calling us to. And we pray Jesus, that You'd renew our minds as far as being a family together. And we want to weep with those who weep. We want to rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't want to have a mindset of church where we can just come and go, and it doesn't have any impact on our life, and it's just another meeting in our weekly schedule. We want to have new eyes to see each other as a family together. A family that has a great mission forth in this city to bring family to those who have no family. And so we pray, Father, for Your wisdom in that. We want to reach people. We want to bring people in. We want to show them the love that You have for us by the way that we love them. And so we want to take Your Word seriously that says that true religion is to take, is to take care of widows and orphans and those who are lacking in, in the things that they need in, in physical and emotional and relational and spiritual sustenance for them to live And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to take that seriously. And we want to move forward in that. We want to impact this city uh, by being a family to those who have no family. And I just think of of, uh, Jim Elliott. He said that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We don't want to be fools. We want to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose in being a family uh, to this city